I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning, and I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read from verse 8 through verse 15. Acts 6, verse 8 through 15. I say this often, but it's because it's true. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, use one in the pew. If you don't have one at all, take that book home with you. We would like for you to have a copy of God's Word. If you don't have it, we have a supply, and we'll replace it. We'd rather have you have it than... Um, than not have one at all, so take it. Another thing I'll mention while we're turning is this morning during Sunday school, I had an opportunity, I uh, peeked in on a few classes that were meeting. We have a group of, uh, I was reminded of this, we have a group of really skilled teachers in our church. I saw children that were being well-loved and well-cared for and encouraged, and uh, it was great to see what was happening in our uh, classrooms. I hope um, you uh, drop your children, leave your children into their care with confidence, as you should. Now, Acts chapter 6, verse 8 is where I want to begin reading, and I'm going to read through verse 15. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom and the spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, this is the first of three scenes in the book of Acts uh, where Stephen is the main character. Stephen, uh, a person who is most likely a second-generation follower of Jesus Christ. He was not among the apostles, and he was probably of those who became a follower of Christ after the Lord had risen from the dead. He did not hear from the Lord Jesus himself this commission to go and preach the gospel or to testify about Jesus everywhere, uh, but uh, Stephen owned that commission. He, he took it. He learned it from the apostles, and it was something that became part of his life. All three of these scenes of Stephen's life take place in Jerusalem. That's where they were supposed to start. And what all three of these scenes have in common is that they are the story of collision. This is the story of collision between two contradictory, exclusive truth claims. We'll talk about this more, but either Jesus is Israel's Messiah and he has come and to replace the temple and fulfill the law or he has not. Both of those things cannot be true at the same time. And this is a story, a collision story, that doesn't end happily for Stephen's earthly life. 
I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it for you, but Stephen's going to be martyred. This is the, the first scene of those three scenes that, that feature uh, Stephen. You probably knew that he was going to be martyred, and, and you, you probably know, actually, that if you commit yourself to this same path that Stephen did, you are going to find yourself in collision, too, with somebody else. It probably, it, it, might, it might happen that you find yourself in collision with somebody else who holds to a contradictory, exclusive truth claim. That might happen. Uh, this week, my wife and I were... Um, had a brief conversation with a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a Mormon. She told us she was a Mormon. She appeared, by all accounts, to be a faithful Mormon. She was talking to us about some of the, the Mormon marriage customs that her daughter had just uh, enjoyed. Uh, and the conversation didn't go very far, but as I was thinking uh, about testifying about the Jesus that's in the Bible to her, I thought to myself, we're on a collision course, the two of us. You may find yourself on a collision course with another contradictory exclusive truth claim. But it's likely, I think it's perhaps more likely, that you'll encounter a person who cannot understand why you believe that what you believe is true and that people who disagree with you are wrong. How, how can you have the gall to tell somebody else that what they believe is wrong? You'll meet, you'll meet people who wonder why Christians make so many exclusive truth claims, why we talk so much about the truth and about being right and about being wrong. That's the prevailing view. It's the undercurrent in our culture. It, it, it exists in our culture like your refrigerator exists in your house. If it's quiet at your house at night, can you hear that refrigerator humming? That's the undercurrent of this thought in, in our culture. And the thought is that all religions are basically the same. That uh, uh, there are different flavors, kind of different flavors of them, but all religions are basically the same, and no one has any corner on the truth. All religions, in some way, are committed to social stability. They want young adults to calm down and get married and have children and work hard so that there is stability in society. And if you don't, bring about stability in society, there is a God who will punish you for being bad or maybe reward you for being good. It doesn't matter if you call this God Allah or Jesus or God. All religions are basically the same. You know, people who think like that, inevitably you're going to meet people who think like that. Talking to them about Jesus Christ, like testifying like Stephen does here, it does not set you on a collision course with an, in those instances with another contradictory exclusive, exclusive truth claim. Rather, it feels more like you're punching jello. <laughs> There's just nothing there. Now here's a passage where this collision is between these two diverse truth claims, and at the heart of it is the identity of Jesus. In his relationship to the temple in Jerusalem, in his relationship to the Old Testament law. We're going to spend three weeks with this man. I hope they're profitable weeks for us. I hope that when we're done, you come to admire him and appreciate him. I hope that if you're one of the many people in our church whose name is Stephen, that you walk out if you're pleased to have that name. You may be named after your uncle or your father or your grandfather, but somewhere down the road, it started here back in Acts. That's a good name to have, Stephen is. 
Now, this section that's before us here uh, is only seven verses long, but it's dense material. Stephen's story is a rather significant turning point in the book of Acts. And it emphasizes three different things, three things that that ultimately very closely connect to us and our role as representatives of Jesus Christ. Um, First, this this passage um, talks to us about uh, this character. Who is this man, Stephen, and why is he so much worthy of our appreciation? Something else that's in this passage tells us, it puts this book on a turning point, is what did he say that got him into so much trouble? Why, what was his teaching? That's actually a theological turn in this passage. Third, you should look at this story itself and you think, now how does Stephen fit in the whole book of Acts? How does, Luke, in in chapter 7, we're going to find this next week, Luke records the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts and it belongs to Stephen. Not Peter, not Paul. Why Why does Stephen get so much attention? How does his story move the book of Acts along? Those are actually the the three things that I want to look at this morning. I'm going to look at this story from three different angles. We have a man, we have a character, a good man, Stephen, and we have a teaching, a theology, what he said, and then we have just how this fits in the narrative, how this fits in the story. Now, let's start with the story itself here. What do we as this passage teach us if we think about Stephen in the book of Acts? This story teaches us that God moves his people to stay on mission. God moves his people to stay on mission. He commissioned them in, in Acts chapter 1, and here he is decisively moving them forward on the mission that he has given them. Now, since the beginning of the book of Acts, so far, our focus has been on Jerusalem, which is wonderful. That's where they were supposed to start. They were to start testifying about Jesus in Jerusalem. And in the course of time that they've been there, a number of months, maybe a few years, as many as 10,000 people have become followers of Jesus. Wow, that's excellent. They started in Jerusalem, though. Jesus, remember, had said... Start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and the farthest parts of the earth. Well, how, how does God get his people moving? Uh, Stephen's story is here to tell us that. It's actually the hinge point that gets people out of Jerusalem. Here's how God does it in the book of Acts. He does it uh, in two ways. First of all, he does it through persecution. It's one of the ways that God get his, gets his people moving through persecution. Again, Stephen's going to be martyred. And his martyrdom is a turning point in the work of the church. Flip over with me very carefully uh, just a chapter, actually two chapters, to Acts 8, verse 1. Just a page or two to Acts 8, verse 1. Now, um, Acts 8, 1 starts, and Saul approved of their killing him. That sentence goes up. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But how, here's how 8, 1 continues. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is terrible. People are being murdered. They're being martyred. They're being chased. They're being arrested, thrown into prison. Saul, whose name is in verse 1, it seems to be the leader of this terrible persecution that has broken out against the church. It's awful. 
Yet look down at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Ah, there's the sweetness in this story. There's the sweetness in this persecution. They go out of the city of Jerusalem because they're being arrested and chased and harassed. And everywhere they go, they preach the word. God's moving his people to stay on mission. We find here in this story another reminder. It's one that we find all the way through the Bible that God always makes suffering the servant of his people. God does not allow suffering into your life to crush you, to destroy you. God uses suffering as the servant of his people. That's something, I know this, is something you can usually only see in reverse in the rearview mirror. It hardly ever feels that way when you're in the midst of suffering to think, wow, I can see God doing so much in my life. Trust me, though, the Bible teaches us repeatedly, suffering, it, God makes suffering his servant in the lives of his people. Knowing that should help us, doesn't it? Helps us in the middle of that conflict that you're having in your family that comes back over and over and over again. It helps you when you're, you're in a lot of pain. Your body just is, is broken. It hurts. Helps you in the midst of uh, a financial trouble or grief. No one's here as a masochist. We don't love the pain. But in the midst of the suffering, because we know that God uses suffering as a servant for his people, we don't just cry out for relief. We cry out for God to do his work. Don't waste this pain in my life, God. Please don't waste this pain. So God keeps his people on mission through persecution. But he also keeps it on mission through people, particular people. And Luke, we're going to find this out in the days that are ahead, focuses our attention on four different people through whom he uses, uh, that that he keeps his church moving. These four men, Stephen, Philip, Peter, and Paul. Stephen, through this testimony here, Philip, because Philip is the first man to take the gospel to Samaria. Uh, Peter, because he's the first one to preach the gospel to a Gentile, Cornelius, that'll come up in Acts chapter 10, Tevin, that's not a word, 10. And then Paul, who is the one who carries the gospel throughout the known Roman world. These four men. Three of those four men are surprising. It's surprising that they're not all a part of the original 12. Peter is, uh, but it's, it's Stephen and Philip and Paul. It's surprising. God uses a variety of people in a variety of circumstances to accomplish his, his good plans. I, I, this is excellent. What an opportunity. In the book of Acts, we have an opportunity to meet people who are not part of the original circle of apostles who do great things for God. We're going to have in the, in the coming weeks, because it's that time of year, we're going to have an opportunity again to nominate elders to serve in our congregation. We're going to talk again about how important they are and the, the work that they do. We have fine men who serve as, as elders. But ministry in this church does, ministry in this church in Jerusalem did not begin and end with the apostles, and ministry in our church does not begin and end with the elders. Every congregation needs men and women who can teach and lead and serve in various capacities, in unique ways, through their various gifts and different platforms. 
God uses people to keep his church focused on mission. Stephen here for these chapters is at the prow of the ship as the church is moving forward. It's his turn. I read this chapter and I, I ask myself, what is God doing right now to help us as a church stay on mission? How is God at work in Grace Baptist Church of Millersville to keep us on mission? A congregation of men and women who are committed together and individually to represent Christ in the townships that we live in, in the boroughs that we live in, scattered as we are around uh, the southern end of the county. How's God keeping us on mission? I hope, and I hope this isn't hubris to say this, I hope that our study of the book of Acts is one of the ways that God is doing that. Looking at this book and reading these chapters and being challenged by it. But I wonder if God is also at work through one of our growth group leaders to help us keep our focus tighter on this mission. Or one of our Sunday school teachers. Or one of the ministry team leaders. I wonder if they're among the particular people that God is using to keep us on mission. This is how Stephen's story fits in the overall story of the book of Acts. Keeping, God is using him to keep the church moving forward in the mission. Now, let's talk about the man himself, Stephen as he is. Uh, What's interesting about this, this passage is that Luke seems to, in these, chap- these verses, go out of his way to show the exemplary character of Stephen. Stephen is a man who is worth emulating. That's what this passage, these verses tell us. Stephen is a man worth emulating. He's a character worth following. You're supposed to read Acts 6, put Stephen's picture up, and then uh, look in the mirror. It's Stephen's picture and your image, and you're supposed to compare the two. How do they look together? I think Luke does that because over and over again he tells us about the sort of person that he is. In verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, Stephen was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. That is, he was full of grace. He was like Jesus. His, his, his life was marked by the graciousness that comes from Jesus. What's interesting is um, he says he was full of power. He performed great wonders and signs. Uh, Stephen is a few, just a couple of the people who are not apostles who the Bible says they performed signs and wonders. We, we don't know anything about how he did these or when he did these. Remember, though, that that Stephen was one of the people who cared for the widows in the church. And I wonder if when he went around to visit some of the widows, if God in those moments used him to bring healing to the lives and the bodies of those that he served. That's a distinct possibility. I'm speculating completely. Um, He was, verse 10, full of the Spirit. Now, why does Luke go through this? full of wisdom and the spirit and grace and power and faith. Why does Luke do this? I think that Luke is doing it as part of his strategy to help Theophilus. Do you remember Theophilus? Don't forget Theophilus. Theophilus is the original recipient of the book of Acts. Theophilus is a follower of Jesus, but he has a lot of questions about what it means to be a Christian. And Luke is trying to assure Theophilus that even though Stephen was arrested, it's not because he was guilty of a crime. 
How would you feel if your child came home one day and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to join this new movement. Don't worry, Mom and Dad. Uh, everybody who leads this movement is an ex-con, but it's great. Does that make you a little nervous? Theophilus, you need to understand, Stephen was arrested, Stephen was martyred even, but it's not because of a flaw in his character. In fact, he was remarkably balanced and godly man. We talked a moment ago, I read it in verse 5, it says he was full of faith. If we tie that to verse 10, and then tie to a verse in Luke, follow me here. He was full of faith, verse 10 They, his opponents, could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. That word, stand up against his wisdom, is right from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus had promised, look at Luke 21, verses 12 to 15. They will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Hasn't Jesus in this verse put his finger on one of the things that keeps you from speaking to people about Jesus? I'm afraid. I won't know what to say. They argue with me or they ask me questions. I'm afraid. Stephen, it appears, has taken the, 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 word, the Lord at his word. I'll do it. I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to help me in those moments. Then look at this verse 15. There's this unusual description of Jesus. His face was shining like the face of an angel. I'd love to see what that was like. What was it? Was he literally glowing before them? I don't know. What's interesting is it it says the same thing about Moses, doesn't it, in the Bible? Luke is comparing Stephen to Moses. Stephen is like Moses. He's been in God's presence and his face shows it. Actually, if if you wanted to, you could compare not just Stephen to Moses. You could compare Stephen to Jesus. Ben Witheringtown did so. He's a, a scholar that studied the book of Acts. He says there's ten ways in this passage in which Luke is like uh, excuse me, Stephen is like Jesus. I won't go over all ten of them, but just think of a, a few of them. Uh, both of them were arrested. They both had trials before the Sanhedrin. Both of them had false witnesses that were brought before them. Both of them were interrogated by the high priest. Both of them were sentenced to death. Both of them, when they were dying, cried out, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen is like Jesus. He is on the Calvary road like Jesus calls us to be. So if Stephen, you have Stephen's picture in Acts chapter 6 and you're looking at a mirror... What do you see in the mirror as compared to what you see here in Acts 6, this picture that we have here? Let me just make one suggestion. The church of Jesus Christ needs people like Stephen. We need skilled, spirit-gifted defenders of the faith. We need people uh, who can do apologetics and who can defend the faith and who can speak about why following Jesus is spiritually and socially and culturally and intellectually satisfying. We need people who can make those hard arguments and and enter into those good debates. We need people who can do that. Some of you, that's you love this. This is your calling. Um, maybe you've you've moved to Lancaster to go to college to learn how to do it. That's great. The church needs people like that. 
uh, a classroom is a great place to learn a lot of information very efficiently. But a classroom is a very inefficient place to learn what it means to be full of God's grace. The church needs able apologists who are very much like Jesus Christ in their character. How how comprehensive, how, how balanced of a representative of Jesus are you? When I was a college student, I attended a, 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 a church not too far away from campus. It's called Patterson Park Church. In that church, I met a man. His name was John Mummy. And John Mummy was taller than I was and wider than I was. He had broad, broad shoulders. And he used to walk kind of with a, like he was a little stiff. Well, the reason that John Mummy walked that way is because John Mummy was an Ohio State University college football star. Um, he was... Uh, uh, very prominent in his high school. He went to Ohio State. He played for uh, Woody Hayes. And then after uh, he graduated from school, he eventually went back. He was assistant coach uh, at Ohio State from 1969 to 1976. And John Mummy would come, uh, I would see him, he, he would wear occasionally uh, an NCAA championship ring. He'd wear the one that he had because he had sold the rest of them that he had to fund missions trips that John took all over the world. Uh, then I, I met another guy. His, his name was Claude Hambrick. Claude and his wife Ruby had been married for over 50 years. Claude was a pediatrician. He was retired. I was never in that building that Claude wasn't actually already there, and he knew all 800 of the members of the congregation and, and talked to them and encouraged them and saw them. I got acquainted with John and Claude at a uh, prayer meeting. It was a men's prayer meeting and met every Saturday morning at 6.30 in the morning. So I left my dorm about 6 o'clock. There's nobody up in a men's dorm at 6 o'clock on Saturday morning. I got up, drove to the church. We went in, we read a psalm together, and then we prayed. Uh, One semester I took a psalms class. It was great. I loved the psalms class. I learned a lot about the science of interpreting the psalms, and I could say things in our discussion that were, I, I hope, at least somewhat helpful about the science of understanding the book of psalms. But you could tell that actually when we prayed... John and Claude didn't know quite as much about the science of interpreting the Psalms, but they knew the heartbeat of living the Psalms. I didn't learn everything that I should have from John and from Claude. I'm sure of that. But if you want to represent Christ like Stephen did, you should be collecting in your mind names and faces like that in your past. It's... Frankly, this is done, don't tell your professor I said this, but it's done off campus. Um, In some small room at a church where it's so early in the morning that the thermostat hasn't kicked the heat on yet. Retired doctors and retired football players. uh, Grace, power, faith, Holy Spirit. God, give us men like this. Give us men and women like this who represent you with a sharp mind and a soft heart. Now it's to that sharp mind that I want to turn finally this morning and I want to think about Stephen's teaching. We're going to look at this more detail in more detail next week when we get to his sermon, but what did he say that got him into so much trouble? Uh, this, is, this is the narrative um, turning point. It's a theological turning point in the book of Acts. In contrast to what these Jewish opponents argue, Stephen is upholding, this is his message, the singular supremacy of Jesus. 
Jesus' singular supremacy. That's what got him into trouble. Especially in contrast to the temple that was in Jerusalem and the law of Moses, Stephen is upholding Jesus as singularly supreme. Now, we infer this from the accusations that are made against him. Stephen's opponents are members of a synagogue, maybe two synagogues, we're not sure from the text, a synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freed Men. That is, they themselves were either freed slaves or they were the children of freed slaves. They were Jews who at some point in time had been taken away from Jerusalem. They grew up in the Roman or Israel. They grew up somewhere in the Roman world. And at some point in time, they had returned and founded this synagogue. It was a synagogue where they probably had the services in Greek. They were from Cyrene and Alexandria and Cilicia and Asia. Stephen was, was, was uh, proclaiming and, and, and arguing and debating about them. Uh, and uh, the arguments... Well, they didn't work. They couldn't stand up to them. So then, verse 11, what did they do? They moved to slander. Arguments didn't work. Let's go to slander. John stops at his commentary at this point in time and says, let's not do that as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's not, when our arguments don't convince people, and they won't always convince people, let's not move from there to slander. That's the appropriate word, right? Tuesday's coming. Oh, it'll be so nice. Can't wait for election day to come and be over. Right? If your arguments don't work, try slander. That's the campaign slogan of people I'm probably voting for on Tuesday. Let's not do that, John Stott says. Let's not do that. Uh, So they accuse Stephen of blaspheming against the temple and of claiming that Jesus is going to destroy it and undo the law. I'm sure they're twisting some of what Jesus has said, but they're talking about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Stephen is arguing Jesus is the Messiah, that is, he is God's deliverer. He's come to rescue us from all of our enemies. And Stephen says, and more than you can imagine, not just your physical human enemies here on earth, but Jesus has come to rescue us from sin and from death. He's come to rescue you from an enemy that is beyond this world. And, and Stephen must have suggested to them how this changes their understanding of the temple and the law. See, a temple is a meeting place between God and human beings. The Jeru- Jerusalem was the, was the temple where God lived and where uh, the law told the Israelites how to live but with God as he lived in that temple. And the New Testament says Jesus is the new and better temple. He's the place where God and human beings meet. And he fulfilled the the law like none of these people could. He fulfilled it absolutely perfectly. See, the opponents of Stephen understood the implications of their message. If Jesus is the new and better temple, if he fulfilled the law of Leviticus better than any of us can, what does that mean about the temple? means it's passing in significance. It's priests, it's sacrifices, it's laws. They're all fading. It's actually a theme we'll follow through, through the book of Acts. They fought back. Here's the collision of these two exclusive truth claims. The supremacy of Jesus or the supremacy of Moses. Moses is a good gift to the people. The law is great. The temple is wonderful. 
But now they have been superseded by Jesus. No other religion, no other faith system, no other worldview has someone at its center like Jesus. Someone as compelling and powerful and triumphant and gracious and good as he is. We're going to trace this storyline through the book of Acts. How do these Jews faithfully follow Jesus now, knowing that he is the new and better temple, and that he's fulfilled the law? For Stephen, what he says is that Jesus is worth defending and worth dying for. We don't worship a God who just punishes us when we do wrong. We worship a God who has come and was punished for us on the cross. We don't worship a God who is just trying to keep us from being nice and introducing stability in the world. We worship a God who frees us from the condemnation and the power of sin. We're going to learn from Stephen next week that sometimes religious people are the ones who miss this about Jesus the most. In the meantime, we'll save that for next week. In the meantime, we pray that God will use men and women in our church who are full of grace and full of wisdom and full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit to magnify his supremacy in our midst and to focus us clearly on our mission. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks and praise for the greatness of Jesus Christ. And we are thankful to you for a man like Stephen who was such a a balanced and um, wonderful representative of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are often challenged by the book of Acts and we pray, Father, that you would raise up men like Stephen in our congregation, women who have his courage and his graciousness, his wisdom, his reliance on the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would be at work in our midst to keep us focused on the mission that you have given us to testify about Jesus in the neighborhoods where we live and and beyond. Do that work in us. Use men like this. Use people like this for your sake. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.